This is episode 336 of the AWS podcast, released on October 13, 2019. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Sam Leisha here with you. Great to have you back. And I'm joined by a very special guest all the way from beautiful Seattle. I'm joined by Steve Roberts, who's a senior technical evangelist with a very deep expertise in .NET. But we'll get to that soon. G'day, Steve. How are you doing? Uh, very well, thanks. Good to have you on the podcast. Now, you are a long, long-term Amazonian by by my dead reckoning well over eight years, which is a long time in Amazon years. Yeah, I, uh, I joined uh, eight and a half years ago, something like that. And uh, I've been working for the majority of that time on our .NET tools. Um, that I think we're going to talk about in the podcast. And then last November, I transitioned over to my current role, which is a technical evangelist. Ah, and this is why, you know, we thought it would be interesting to have you on because you've been you've been deep in the tools. And let me let me maybe pre- ask you a, a leading question. Eight years ago, did you get asked, does AWS support .NET? <laughs> and do you get that question now as well? I got asked then and I got asked now, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, when you look back over time, you know, we've been supporting Windows and .NET now for 11 years, right? And by current estimates, you know, there's twice as many Windows services for instance, is running on AWS, you know, seven times the downtime hours, fewer downtime hours in 2018. So in that 11 years, you know, we've built up a lot of expertise about how to run Windows and .NET and SQL Server, right, in a cloud environment. So I was going to say, I think that's one of the important things is it's not just about whether you can run something, it's the experience you get from running it and running it at scale. Right. One of the things we try and do with customers is, is of course, learn from learn from lessons of everyone and share it, don't we? Yes. You know, and looking back over those those eleven years, you know, it's like, okay, so where did we start, right? So when I look back over time, because some of this this actually predates me joining Amazon. You know, we launched support for Windows Server two thousand three. That was all the way back in two thousand eight. Obviously, we've added new Windows Server versions since then. We're not just stuck on two thousand eight. But today, I was kind of staggered to to realize that you know we have over one hundred and forty compute instance types across you know thirty seven different instance families for EC two alone. And then I discovered that we we had 60 different images supporting different varieties of Windows workloads. And, and those those images are really interesting because I remember one of my earliest recollections of Windows customers being delighted about using AWS was when a new version of Windows Server came out and they had to start their whole testing regime to make sure they could migrate their applications and all that sort of stuff. And that was always kind of, I think, quite painful to do on premises because you had to get servers and storage and install. And it was like, oh, we have these AMIs and you can just click the button and go. And like jaws were hitting the floor. It's like, when can I start? Which is pretty cool. Yeah, right. I mean, it, with the, the Visual Studio Toolkit that we, we talk about in a little while, I think, you know, we have a, a launch wizard inside there for EC2 instances, you know, and, and there right now I can just open it up and say, oh, I want to launch a Windows Server 29 image, you know, straight from within my IDE, remote into it and start working with it straight away. But, you know, if I'm on the other side of things, maybe I'm looking for like a specialism for a dedicated workflow or, or work uh, workload. AIML is a hot topic right now, right? Everyone's doing AIML this, that and the other. And we offer a dedicated deep learning image for Windows. It comes pre-built with all the necessary libraries frameworks, all that no extra cost. And I can launch that straight from inside my IDE. And so, so that ability to run native is important. And I, I guess uh, there's an SDK as well that makes it really easy if you're a .NET developer to just get going. Yeah. So little known fact, actually, the AWS SDK for .NET, that was actually the first public SDK we ever shipped. And that was, again, back in 2008. That was V1. Uh, we're now up to V3. Uh, it supports all AWS services. So right from inside your application code, you know, you can work against all of the AWS services. And it makes it really easy. I mean, if you, if you look at like service documentation, you know, some of this, it'll say things like, I'll send an XML request to this endpoint or send a JSON payload to this endpoint. What the SDK does is it abstracts all of that away. So as a C-sharp developer, you work with C-sharp types. You instantiate 
negotiate a client for a particular service. That client implements an interface, which is the service operations. And then you fill out a request type with here's the parameters I want to send in. You call the operation on the client. Then the SDK then takes over and does all the marshalling onto the wire. You don't need to care, is it using XML? Is it using JSON? Do I pass parameters in the headers, in the query uh, structure? Do I put them in the body? It just does all that for you. And then you get back uh, on the wire, obviously, a you know, the payload that comes back from the service, it then unmarshals that, gives you back rich C-sharp types with all the data in it. And obviously, when you call an AWS service, you know, you have to sign the request to make sure it's coming from an, you know, an authenticated account. So the SDK takes care of all of that for you as well. So calling an AWS service is as easy as calling, you know, a .NET framework class or an instance method on your on your local development system. So it's very familiar and you're not dealing with all, all the security and the um, credential management, et cetera. However, the SDK is doing it and doing it using best practice. And it also does things like back off retry and all the other undifferentiated heavy lifting of calling an API it just does it for you. Yes, and it and it, it services itself in a way that's familiar to the, the .NET platform that you're working on. So, for example, if you're working on, let's say, .NET 3.5, right? .NET 3.5, you have synchronous methods, obviously, to the, to the services, but you also have asynchronous methods, and they follow like the begin-end paradigm that was current at that time. Now, with .NET 4 and, and so on, and .NET Core, you know, we have the task-based asynchronous methods. So there you'll see method names ending in async. So what gets surfaced to you as a developer inside your IDE is, relevant to the platform you've selected that you're developing against uh, and the SDK supports all of those. And maybe let's jump into that that ID experience because um, Visual Studio tends to be a go-to for, for many, many .NET developers. So what have we done in that world to help that style of development? So what we do with Visual Studio is we have a toolkit. When we launched it, oh, let me see, that was back in 2011, I think. Um, that was one of the first things we launched after I joined uh, Amazon. We surface a, a couple of things. One is an Explorer window. So this kind of surfaces to developers in their IDE, not all the services, obviously, because it would be overwhelming, but a bunch of services that we think developers would want to work with when developing their applications. So we have S3 storage buckets in there, EC2 instances that I've already mentioned. You can you know launch from there, remote straight into an instance, be it Windows or Linux from inside the IDE. Elastic Beanstalk for you know PaaS deployments, Lambda for serverless, uh, and so on. So you have that Explorer window that lets you to drill into resources that you have. It's uh, multi-region aware, so you can go globally around the world, all our regions, see what resources you have and work with them there. It also services a whole bunch of deployment wizards. So you can take your code, you can deploy it to Lambda if it's a serverless function, CloudFormation, if you want to deploy templates to there, Beanstalk I've already mentioned, ECS, ECR container that work, et cetera, et cetera. So really anything you want to get up and running, you don't have to kind of leave the comfort of your IDE, you're just activating it from there. That's right. That was the kind of mindset that we had at the time when we were developing this was, you know, I don't, as a developer, I'm I'm in my IDE and as, this, this is how I used to work actually as a, as a developer. I would be in Visual Studio all day. That was my central hub where I did everything. And, you know, our mindset was, don't make me go to an external window to do something, right? If I'm developing code. Now, this is a whole different ballgame if you're deploying to production, right? You're not going to do that from inside Visual Studio. But when I'm deploying my code, keep me inside my IDE, you know, and let me work with these resources, iterate on my deployments, et cetera, until I'm happy with the app. And then I'm going to, you know, figure out my production uh, mechanisms. Yeah. Now, a few years ago, there was some some really cool stuff, which was around PowerShell and PowerShell Core. Mm-hmm. It's kind of revolutionary in terms of the cross-platform nature of it and some of the other cool stuff. And I know you, you're you very passionate about this area and you got to do some, some pretty cool stuff. So maybe tell us about what our support for PowerShell and PowerShell Core looks like and who you announced it with. Oh, yeah. So let's see, 2013, I think it was, we announced our first PowerShell modules that I was a, a dev lead on at that time. And yeah, they, they were, in my opinion, 
which is humble. You know, they were, they were pretty awesome, right? So basically, when we launched the first version, I think we had support for about 20 services. Um, that was AWS at the time, 500 and some odd commandlets. And over the years, we've kept up with service launches uh, and, new, and new extensions on services. And we'd reached the point where, certainly recently, where we had over 6,000 commandlets or getting close to 6,000 oh. commandlets, over 170 plus services. And we'll go ahead and name them all now. <laughs> uh, no, no, but I'm going to come back to that later on because that causes some, <laughs> some issues. But yeah, in that time, you know, this thing has just grown hugely. And when Microsoft announced that they were going to do cross-platform PowerShell, or PowerShell Core is now PowerShell 6. Yeah, we were invited to help out with the launch. So I was thrilled to record some videos with Jeff Snover, the, you know, the creator of PowerShell, on the AWS commandlets running on Linux. In fact, I think on, on the demos that we did, we used his Mac or a Mac to actually illustrate it. Um, so that was pretty cool. Nature. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the 6,000 odd commandlets, which we're not going to try and recite now. But, you know, I think I think it's an interesting thing to mention. You know, I think on, on the one hand, we, we talk about, oh, we don't have too many options, too many things. But but on the other hand, you know, developers do like choice and they like the ability to use the right tool for the right job at the right time. However, the big trick is how to find it. So do you have a little tip of how to handle your 6,000 odd and growing commandlet? collection? Well, I do. So there's actually a commandlet that we wrote a few years back now inside the tools. It's called get-aws commandlet name. And what it allows you to do is to query um, for a commandlet based on a service operation. You can do things like, for a given service, show me all of the commandlets for this service. For a given commandlet, what API does it map to? Or in, in reverse, if I, know, if I know the service API, for example, maybe I'm using the SDKs, you know, and I want to see what the PowerShell equivalent is, you know, what PowerShell commandlet maps to this. Um, it can also do things like take an AWS CLI command and then give you the corresponding commandlet and the PowerShell tools. So that's helpful if you're like navigating our documentation, for example, and you come across a CLI example and you think, oh, but I'm a PowerShell user, what would it be over here? Because obviously PowerShell has restrictive, fairly restrictive naming conventions to help people working in that environment. So we wrote that and it's proved to be fairly successful, I think. Certainly it's popular when I when I demo it. But recently, you know, we, we looked at that 6,000 commandlets issue, which was causing us a couple of problems. And well, I say causing us, it was causing our customers problems too. So basically what was happening was because of the size of the module, and we offer two modules, there's one that targets Windows PowerShell version 2 or higher on Windows only. And then there was a PowerShell core version that targeted Windows, Mac, and Linux version 3 or higher. So it's obviously PowerShell 6 of using PowerShell core. And we discovered that the load time of that module was just increasing. Um, on my laptop, for example, it was taking 20 plus seconds to load the module. And we were hitting issues with publishing to the PowerShell gallery because we were also an early adopter of the PowerShell gallery because the, there is a limit to the number of commandlets you can actually list inside the manifest that accompanies the module. And that in turn enables tab completion without explicitly importing the module. So you get into this situation where you have to explicitly import the module to be able to work with it, which gives you a 20 second load time on my laptop, for example, you know, before the shell's even usable. So the team last month, yeah, it was last month, I think, no, I think about it, did some fantastic work. What they've done is they've basically broken apart the PowerShell modules so they, they now mimic what the SDK does, where we have one module per service. And they've released that as a set of modules to the PowerShell gallery. I think there's 170 plus modules now. So now you only need to install what you want to work with. If I only want to work with EC2, for example, I only need the EC2 module. That gives me back all my tab completion. It's much yeah. more efficient. For example, the load time on my laptop now for my command shell has gone from 20 plus seconds to just over a second. But it means we can also cater for all the new services that are going to come along. Correct. And uh, and not keep not make it sort of 20. 30, 40 seconds type load time. It just stays yeah. at that nice 
stable amount. Yeah, and that's also a benefit then if, you know, if I'm writing serverless functions in PowerShell to work with Lambda, you know, I'm not taking that launch time hit of having to load a huge module. I just need to deploy with just the modules that I need to use in Lambda. And, and I guess that that deployment time in general is a, is a big issue for, for developers these days with the rise of DevOps as a, as a kind of standard way of operating, the need to do continuous integration, continuous deployment, et cetera. Some of the tooling also changed to, to help support that in, uh, in Windows environments. Yes, yeah, so we added .NET CLI extensions. So .NET for .NET Core anyway has a cross-platform CLI command line tool. So we publish a bunch of extensions for that. One for Lambda. There's a package for Elastic Beanstalk. There's a package for Lam- for I mentioned it, uh, Lambda the ECS. So you can use those from your DevOps environments. Um, you know you don't have to do deployments from Visual Studio. It's a very fast turnaround time. You can also obviously use them on your Dev workstation. I use them there as well, and they round trip as well. So if you are using Visual Studio, or let's say you're working with a team where maybe you're working on a Mac or a Linux environment, the rest of the team are maybe working on Windows and using Visual Studio, they actually round trip. They have a settings file that when you deploy, you know, the settings are used by the wizards in Visual Studio as well as the command line tools. So you get this efficient, fast iteration of code that you're deploying out to Visual Studio. Uh, sorry, to uh, AWS. And and one of the other things we did is, is obviously release the Visual Studio code extension. And I think what's interesting here, and you know, you spend a lot of time with customers now in your, in your current role, is that we didn't just release it, we put it onto GitHub and develop uh, developing it in the open. So the community is actually influencing that. So what what, are, what does it do and what have you seen it change into based upon customer feedback? So yeah, this was, this was a very interesting toolkit. Uh, we got this one started last year and we made an early decision that we were actually going to develop it in the open. Well, obviously we had some internal prototypes floating around that people had worked on that we merged together and then we released that as a preview when it gained a certain amount of functionality. It's really targeted at serverless development for Lambda or serverless application development anyway. And unlike the Visual Studio Toolkit, where we looked at that back you know, eight years ago, whenever it was when we launched it, and said, okay, these are the services that we think developers are going to want to work with inside their development environment. And then we added you know, XYZ services. For Visual Studio Code, we're like, okay, let's target this at a particular, work, a particular workload or workflow for serverless development. We'll get it to the point where you can create, you know, U functions, skeleton functions to start with, deploy those, test those locally, test them remotely, et cetera. And then we'll open it up and see where the community takes it, right? And see what they want to add to it. And it's been very well received. I mean, I don't work on the team anymore, so I don't know exactly what features they've been incorporating. I kind of try and keep an eye on on things to see where mm-hmm. it's going because obviously I need to demo it. But, you know, day to day, I don't I don't keep track of it. It just sort of uh, grows on its own. Yeah, it grows on its own. Yeah. And certainly every time, you know, that we've tweeted about it, you know, there's been a good response. We announced uh, the general availability of it at the New York summit back in July. We actually did a Twitch launchpad video on it. Um, so that was, that was quite well received. That'd have been cool. And so let's talk a little bit about your own journey because I think you touched on the fact that you were building these tools for customers well before we had you on the road talking to customers about these tools, weren't you? Yeah, so that was the job I was brought in to do was to work on the Visual Studio Toolkit. And obviously we had the SDK at the time, so I was working on that. Yeah, over that like eight-year journey, I've worked on the SDK, Visual Studio Toolkit, PowerShell tools, VS Code. I at least got the, the beginnings of that going. And uh, also our tools, our toolkit for VSTS or Azure DevOps, as, it, as it's now called. So that was a, another interesting project that I worked on where it actually came from Microsoft. There was um, Microsoft were doing some queries uh, on their marketplace to see what the, the hot search topics were and AWS is coming up quite a lot. And so one of their... Uh 
uh, I guess their equivalents to me, evangelists, whatever you want to call them, started a, a project to, you know, feasibility with this work. And then we were approached by Microsoft to say, hey, do we, do we want to take on ownership and development of this? Because obviously we're the experts on AWS, uh, not yeah. them. So we were like, you know, heck yeah, we'll we'll take it on. So we added support for working with a whole bunch of additional services and then released that a, a couple of years ago now. And that again was quite well received. That one we have had pull requests in to extend the functionality to different services or add settings and things to the bill. So what it lets you basically do is from your existing Azure DevOps or VSTS, TFS, build and release pipelines, do that last mile deployment to AWS. So, you know, I can deploy to Elastic Beanstalk, CloudFormation, CodeDeploy, Lambda, etc. from inside my build. Or I can work with other AWS services like Secrets Manager. If I want to put secrets into my build pipeline, I can pull those from Secrets Manager or Parameter Store, upload content or download content from S3, you know, all without leaving that VSTS, that Azure DevOps environment. Very simple, sort of point and click tasks. They, they just fit right in with the existing paradigm that Azure DevOps uses. So Steve, you've you've gone on a really interesting journey because you've gone from being kind of behind the scenes building the tools, although our tool builders tend to spend a lot of time talking to customers when they're building the tools, but you've gone to the, the reverse now where you're, you're out front all the time speaking with developers and customers and prospective customers about using Windows and .NET on AWS. What are some of the, I guess, common things you get asked and, and you'd like to demystify? For I think the most common thing that I get asked actually is when I uh, actually do a session, uh, you know, a user group or a meetup or whatever. It's, it's, I see this look on people's faces of, wait, you have a toolkit for Visual Studio? How did I not know this? Um, <laughs> you, you know, and, and and when they see it and they see it demoed and they realize what you can do with it, never mind the rest of the tools. Yeah, You know, yeah. that that is just, Great. Yeah, that's that makes it really worth it, actually. Yeah, so I, I, I must admit, I do quite enjoy that. But I, I do get that asked quite a lot. Certainly if I'm at a conference and I'm, uh, you know, I'm manning perhaps a, a booth or something, people will, will walk by and, hey, what's what's AWS doing at, uh, at a .NET conference, you know? And you say, mm. oh, well, do, you, do you know that we have all these tools? And, no, tell me more, you know? So, yeah, that's great. And and for some of those customers you meet with that are heavy .NET users on AWS, what are some, what are some of the cool things you've seen done? What are some, some things that stick in your mind? Oh, there's a question of seeing so many different things <laughs> um, it's hard to have a favorite it, it is hard well, to maybe have even a what are some trends yeah. what are some trends you see what are some sort of are you seeing a big move to to serverless or what what's what's the i guess the state of play in terms of dot net world on aws yes i'm seeing a, a lot of increased curiosity uh, as well as actual implementation of serverless. People, I think, are really getting this this idea, you know, that managing infrastructure, you know, is like so yesterday, right? All I want to do <laughs> as a developer, right, I just want to write my code and I want to give it to something and say, hey, it needs this amount of compute, this amount of memory, just do it, right? And uh, that's where I'm, I'm really seeing it. So, you know, .NET Core is, you know, obviously gaining a lot of traction. PowerShell Core 2. Yeah, in fact, the interesting PowerShell seems to be rising quite well, um, you know, quite a lot in the, the developer sort of ecosystem, which is a surprise, right? Because you you think the .NET, yeah, sorry, PowerShell Core, you know, maybe on Linux, people wouldn't be that so so fond of the idea. You know, they're obviously used to bash and, and things like that. But when you demonstrate PowerShell pipeline of objects passing down a pipeline at the command line, you know, and invoking a method on something at the command line, instead of just grepping and parsing text, you know, that that tends to light people's ideas up and yeah. uh, spark a whole new level of curiosity. And I think particularly in environments where the uh, multi-OS and multi 
sort of polyglot development platforms. Having that ability to operate cross-platform, particularly if you're a small team, can be quite powerful too. Yes. Yeah. In fact, I was I was at a conference recently and I was at a pre-dinner conference and one guy at the at the dinner, it's quite funny in a, in a sense, he, he insisted on shaking my hand. What had happened was he'd, <laughs> he'd learned that from somebody at a different table that I was the dev lead on the original PowerShell tools. And he insisted on shaking my hands because I changed his life. And I'm, yeah, I'm, obviously I'm, I'm a, I'm a Brit, it's humbling, right? isn't it? When that it's happens. humbling, right? I, I'm a Brit and I'm not used to that kind of reaction. I, I mean, I allowed him to shake my hand. He nearly broke it. He was an ex-Marine. Uh, he pushed my hand. But what had happened was he, at the time that we launched those tools, he was, he explained to me that he was like a, a sysadmin on a Windows infrastructure project thing that they, that that particular company had. And they were looking to move to the cloud. But their problem was that they were all PowerShell uh, experts, if you like. And at the time, there, were, there just wasn't any PowerShell support for working with cloud uh, resources. Uh, and then we turned around and you know, surprised everybody by releasing these modules. And suddenly they realized that the skill set they had, they could take forward to the cloud. And you get that now, you know, with the cross-platform.net core and PowerShell core, et cetera, people realize that, you know, the skills I have, you know, already transfer with me to these new environments and these new opportunities in the cloud. Yeah, that, that portability becomes really important. Now, something we also haven't spoken about is SQL Server. So we talked a lot about sort of the app layer. Well, what about the storage layer? What are you seeing happen there? Well, I think uh, the addition of SQL Server on Linux, you know, is, is quite something now. We can, you know, our entire uh, app stack now, you know, we could arguably deploy on Linux mm. you know, and, and get mm. the benefits of that in the cloud. It's pretty amazing. And, that, and I think that's that's been important when, as people have been moving off some of the older SQL Server versions, they're looking to future-proof and to make things more efficient. So having different choices of deployment makes it easier as they're refactoring some of their applications. Yeah. And so what's next? What what do you what do you think is going to be uh big for developers? Like if I'm a if I'm a .net developer and maybe I've maybe I've dabbled in AWS a little bit or I'm thinking about maybe doing it. Where do I start? What what are some of the good resources to get my hands on? So a really good place to start. There are two really good places to start. One is if you go to the .NET homepage on AWS. So aws.amazon.com slash net. That will give you jumping off points to all of the tooling that we have, some step-by-step guides, code samples, et cetera, that will kind of get you started. On the opposite side, we also open source a lot of these tools. So the SDK is open sourced, et cetera. There's a equivalent on GitHub. So github.com slash uh, AWS slash .NET, D-O-T net. That gives you a jumping off point to all of the various open source repositories that we have for .NET development on AWS because we don't just have the SDK. Uh, we also have a whole bunch of extension libraries as well. So things that make uh, like user authentication using Amazon Cognito. Mm. Really simple. It's like a, a drop-in library, one line change to your app, and then you know some files to handle the user registration that we provide you in the site, site of sample. That's really simple to get started with. So that site on GitHub, that gives you that jumping off point to all those libraries. So those are the two that I would recommend and those are the two that usually when I'm out talking, I say, if you, if you remember nothing else, remember these two links. So that's that's the place to go. And I guess the other thing is if you're a, if you're a PowerShell guru, then uh, you now have access to all the power of AWS as well from a very familiar place. Yes. I mean, if you're if you're coding in SDK today, you know, obviously you have access to all the Azure services. I, I don't know how many there are. It changes <laughs> over more time. More than 160 it, is the current. More talent. than 160, more than 160, you know, it's, it's just a massive growth. You know, when you look at the number of commands, is 6,000. And pretty much all of those commandlets are, they map one-to-one to AWS service APIs. So you have this huge scripting service now for AWS um, in PowerShell. So there's those to get started with. I would really recommend you know, or encourage people to go take a look at the, the new preview of the tools that the team released. There is a, a blog post on the news blog about it and also on the 
there's a repository, an issues repository on GitHub for the PowerShell tools. That's linked to from that GitHub site I mentioned. Uh, if you go there, there's a pin notice uh, from, the, from the dev team. They're looking for feedback. They really want to see what people think. Because the other big change that they made with that release was the support for mandatory parameter attribution. So this is a huge thing for PowerShell users. It's a, it's a huge expectation that when you invoke a commandlet, uh, if you know certain parameters have to be re are required, that it will prompt you if you don't supply them. And for you know, since we created these tools, it's not something we've supported. Not because we didn't want necessarily to do it. Firstly, we didn't have the data available to us to be able to do that. But you know, there's always this worry about the blast radius if there's a bad model and things have been marked incorrectly that you know you're suddenly going to disable people's scripts because these tools mm. they're mm. pre-installed on EC2 instances, uh, EC2 images. So you know, we we want to be very careful. We've got to the point now we have a fairly high confidence that the models are, are good, uh, and if we do get a problem, you know, we can spin a new build very very quickly and release it uh, and unblock customers. So they're really actively looking for feedback, run as many scripts as you can, is everything looking good, etc. So I really encourage people to take a look at that. Definitely. We'll uh, add links to all those things in the show notes so you can uh, click through and, and contribute. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for uh, sharing a bit of background and telling us what's what when it comes to .NET on AWS. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do it. And until next time, keep on building.